Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely He will save you from the foulest snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hands, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked's. If you say, the Lord is my refuge, and you make the Most High your dwelling, no harm will overtake you, no disaster will come near your dwelling. His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways, they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra, you will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Let's hear it for God's words. It's all true. Thank you. You can be seated. Amazing. It was a Sunday afternoon, January the 8th, 1956, and it was a long beach beside a river called the Kukura River in the Amazonian jungles of Ecuador. There, five young men between the ages of 27 and 35 years old stood. They were very excited. They had great anticipation in their heart. The names were Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, Peter Fleming, and Roger Yondagvan. This was their first contact with the Aka tribe. They had been long awaiting this opportunity to meet them face to face. This tribe that other tribes around them knew as savages. But for months they'd been praying. They believed God had called them to encounter this tribe and introduce them to the Savior. And over the months they'd flown over in their little little plane and they dropped gifts for the folks. And actually they'd received gifts back that had been laid on the beach. So this was their moment. This is their moment where they were going to meet. They landed their little Piper Cub plane beside the beach. And there, that, night, that day, they were expecting to meet some of the villagers. The night before, the five of them had spent the evenings with their families. And now, early Sunday morning, before they set off, they had prayed. Nate Saint flew the plane down onto the beach. And then they radioed their families to say that they had landed and they agreed to radio back at about half past four that evening. From journal and from radio contact, we know that after lunch they sang a hymn. And the hymn, here's some lyrics from the hymn. We rest on thee, our shield and our defender. We go not forth alone against the foe. Strong in thy strength, safe in thy keeping, tender. We rest on thee, and in thy name we go. We rest on thee, our shield and our defender. Thine is the battle, 
Thine shall be the praise. When passing through the, ger- the gates of pearly splendor, victors we shall rest in thee through endless days. The 430 call never came. The five young men, the missionaries, were killed by many tribesmen who came out, who speared them and macheted them to death. Eventually, a search party landed, and they found the bodies of these five missionaries dead on the beach. It became the cover story in the Life magazine. Years later, Elizabeth Elliot, Jim Elliot's wife, wrote Jim's biography, famous biography, maybe some of you have read it, The Shadow of the Almighty. Title Shadow of the Almighty comes from the psalm we've just read, Psalm 91. Rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Some of you are daring enough to ask the obvious question. You know, was God really their refuge? You know, what went on there? If they were under the shadow of God's wing, I mean, they died. It's the obvious question. So, right, we're presented with a psalm with colossal promises that we want to give weight to. And yet we're also in lives that so often don't look like the psalm. So how do we grapple with that? How do we navigate a life that so often does see negative stuff when there's a psalm that's presenting to us robust, strong, God-glorifying promises about our lives? Here's the key that has helped me understand the psalm. The psalm was quoted by Satan to Jesus. Uh, You remember in the temptation when Jesus was in the wilderness? Satan quoted to to Jesus, um, and it's recorded for us in Matthew 4, verses 6 and 7. And it's a section from this psalm. He says, if you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. He'd taken him up to the pinnacle of the temple. And And he said, throw yourself down, for it's written, and here's the quote, He will command his angels concerning you. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So Satan had quoted to Jesus, but it was a half-truth agenda he had. Jesus didn't, I mean, he was, Satan was inaccurate, not in his understanding of the promise, but in his agenda behind it. See, Jesus didn't come back to him and say, no, no, you've misapplied the promise. He didn't didn't say that. The promise did say that the angels would gird you up. And I'm I'm sure, had Jesus have fallen, the angels would have girded them up. So the promise was robust. It's just that Satan's agenda was wrong. He said to Jesus, you know what, do it, prove yourself. The agenda was, you're trying to test God. So Jesus didn't use the psalm as an excuse for reckless living and, hey, God will protect me. But nevertheless, Jesus fully believed the promises of the psalm. So what did it look like in Jesus' life living under the divine covering? What did it look like that amazing protection of the Father on his eternal son when he walked this earth? Okay, here's how it looked. There was a time when Jesus went to his hometown And when he was in his hometown, he declared who he was. People rejected him. In fact, if you read in Luke 4, they took him to the edge of a cliff and they were about to throw Jesus off the cliff. And what did Jesus do? He just walked through the midst of them. How cool is that? He just walked through them. Zing. Not my time, right? Just walked through. 
So was the divine covering of God on the man on Jesus? Absolutely. Okay, there was another moment where Jesus was declaring himself to be none other than God in the flesh. And the Pharisees, understandably, took umbrage to this, and they picked up stones to stone Jesus. And the Bible says, John 8, he hid himself in the temple course. I mean, it's like crowds of people. Ah, how'd you do that? I don't know. But anyway, supernaturally, God protected the Son. It was a divine moment. And yet Jesus was arrested and was crucified. And he died 33 years old. That's not long life. So what's going on here? It's interesting when Jesus, just before he was arrested, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and there the Father sent an angel to strengthen him. It's interesting when he was arrested, Jesus himself said in Matthew 26, 53, uh, do, do you think I cannot call on my Father and he will at once put at my disposal 12 legions of angels? Right, so you have to understand, Jesus totally walked in the divine protection of the Father. I mean, without shadow of a doubt, there just came a moment where it was appropriate for him to die and be crucified. So you look at the disciples, you look at how they lived. You have the apostle Peter. I mean, just lived a divinely inspired and protected life. Lived under the shadow of the Almighty without doubt. Walked on the water, right? In prison, remember, James had been captured by Herod and beheaded. Herod went ahead and proceeded to arrest Peter. Peter was in prison, and he'd fallen asleep in prison. Sounds like someone who's resting in the shadow of the Almighty. Fallen asleep in prison, even though the Jewish expectation was the next day he's going to be beheaded as well. And yet he sleeps, right? Because he's resting in the shadow of the Almighty. In the middle of the night, angel wakes him up. In fact, he was so fast asleep, the angel actually had to wake him. And he told him to put his clothes on, get his jacket on, we need to go. Chains fell off, doors opened. He thought he was in a dream. He kind of walked out and realized, oh, I'm delivered. I mean, it sounds like divine covering and protection to me, right? I mean, seriously, he sent angels. But at the end of Peter's life, he was crucified upside down in Rome. James, who is the pastor of the Jerusalem church, a great man of God, actually... Oh, that was that, sorry. working again. James is a pastor of the Jerusalem church, and he'd been protected by God. Now, he, was, he wasn't James, the brother of John. This was James, the brother of Jesus, the James who wrote the book of the Bible called the book of James. A pastor of the Jerusalem church had undoubtedly seen God's protection in his life, and yet he was martyred by taking to that self-same pinnacle of the temple that Jesus was tempted to throw himself off from, and he was thrown off and he was martyred. Were they living under the shadow of the Almighty? And then you've got Stephen, the first martyr recorded for us in the book of Acts. There was Stephen, and he was uh, preaching about Jesus, and he was taken into an open area, and he was stoned to death. And as he was being stoned to death, he was calling in the name of the Lord, and he has his vision of God. I mean, right in that moment of death, he knew God to be his refuge, without doubt. Right, so 
we've got to understand, whenever you understand a text, you've got to understand it in the context of the whole text. And you look at the lives of the people who these verses would be referring to, not just our lives, but also the lives of these people. And you can say, absolutely, God was their source and their protection. But there were also moments where it, it looked like God had removed his protection. Okay, so how are we to understand this? Many theologians let their experience decide the theology. Now, they do this with healing verses. Verses that talk about healing, they say, ah, it must mean spiritual healing because maybe so-and-so they know didn't get healed. Now, I, I get that that's more convenient. I understand it's a lot more convenient for us to write things off as just spiritual healing. But I don't think that's what the Bible's talking about. I don't think it faces the robustness of the Bible that promises a God who heals, yes, spiritually, but also physically. And the truth is that churches that believe that and step out and pray for the sick see more people healed than churches that don't. Is it God loved them more than others? No, it's just they're stepping out on the robustness of a promise. Same here. Many theologians will take this psalm and say, uh, God's not talking about divinely protecting you in this life. I mean, because look at our lives. He couldn't be talking about that because surely our lives, as if their lives are ultimate truth and the word isn't. All right? Ah. I mean, they, they write it off and say, well, this is spiritual protection. And, and this is protection when we, in eternity, you know, we're rescued from sin and we're, we're saved for eternity. That's what it's all about, surely. And yeah, it does mean that as well. But I think the psalm clearly talks about this life. Jesus didn't contradict Satan's understanding of the promise. He contradicts Satan's agenda behind the temptation. It's a very different thing. So how are we to understand this? Here's two ways that I understand this promise. First of all, I understand that we're living in a kingdom that is and yet is coming. Okay? Jesus fully rules and reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords currently over the kingdom of God. Amen. And yet he tells us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I believe in the sovereignty of God. But believing in the sovereignty of God doesn't make me say, que sera, whatever we will be. Because apparently, I can't look at this world and say the kingdom of God has fully come yet. Apparently, his will being done on earth, as it is in heaven, isn't what we see yet. And yet, he fully is king, and the kingdom is, and the kingdom will be. So I'm believing for a world that's going to be changing but I also understand that we're in a world that's not seeing it all yet. There's that going on. But here's the other thing going on. What I see in the life of Jesus, what I see is in the life of the apostles, what I see in David and Elijah and in Moses and all these people is that as they were operating fully in the bullseye will of the Father, they were living with a divine covering over their lives. Now, a moment comes where according to the will of God, he allows you to suffer. But that's the exception, not the rule. The rule is Psalm 91. The rule is he will deliver you. He will heal you. He will change situations around. And the exception, I believe, and we see it in the life of Jesus, that so many times he walked through crowds or hid himself in the temple, but there was one moment where he was crucified. That there is time in our lives where God will just like the Apostle Paul, we see him being rescued and delivered continuously in the book of Acts, and yet there were times where God allowed him to suffer. Not that he wanted that, but that he allowed it to happen. First Peter 4.19, those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to the faithful creator. 
Sounds like making him your refuge to me. Sounds like in that moment when it's looking tough, all right, it still doesn't, doesn't look like Psalm 91, but I'm still going to trust myself to you as my creator. And the ultimate refuge is found in death. Proverbs 14.32 says, The wicked are crushed by disaster, but the godly have a refuge when they die. In our deaths and in our lives, in our lives we can see his divine protection and his divine covering. But there's going to come a point where we die. And the good news is you can also know God as refuge when you die. The deal is this. You can't make God do anything. But you can choose to make God your refuge in this life. According to Psalm 91, he's revealing his intention. His desire and intention is, his will being done on earth as it is in heaven, looks like amazing interventions and preservation and protection. And you can expect that in your life. But you can't make him do that. So you just, you can, you can however, make God your refuge in life and in death. So let's just look at this amazing Psalm. Let it, let's just let it speak and let it raise your expectation for exactly how God wants to interact with you in this life. Verses 1 to 4, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I'll say of the Lord, he's my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the foulest snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. Wow, what an introduction to the psalm. Four names of God, four metaphors of God. We're given these four names of God. He's described as the most high in, in the Hebrew, that's Elohim. And it means possessor of heaven and earth. He is the owner of everything. And the psalm starts out, you're the most high. You're the possessor of heaven and earth. And it's Elion. And then the almighty he's described as, this is the Hebrew word Shaddai, the almighty. Nothing is too hard for him. I mean, that's what a great way to start a psalm about the protection that you expect to experience from this God. You're just, you're just declaring who he is. He's saying you're the possessor of heaven and earth and you're the almighty. Then he's called Lord, capital L-O-R-D. It's the Hebrew word Jehovah or Yahweh. Remember when God self-disclosed himself as I am, just am, always have been, always will be, never changes, consistent, unchangeable, solid, I am, Lord. It's just him, and it's the covenant name of God. You're declaring, God, you're a God who we're in covenant with. And then he, he describes him as my God, Elohim. We're introduced to Elohim in the very first verse, in the very first book, in the very first chapter of the Bible. In the beginning, Elohim, God creates. This is the ultimate creator. This is the God of all the universe. But notice he calls him my God, my Elohim. He's not just the impersonal God up there. He's made it mine. He's my God. He's not just God. He's my God. Is he your God's? I know he's God's, of course, you, you, you can't change that. But is he your God's? Is he absolutely your God's? Are you following him? Are you letting him be your God's? And this is how the psalm starts. It declares him as, wow, God, you're the most high. You're Lord's. You're the creator. You're the almighty. 
And then he goes on and gives these four great metaphors of God, and he describes him as shelter. You know, in a storm, you need a shelter. Describes him as refuge. Again, a place where you can run in tough times. Describes him as fortress. In other words, he's a place of security and defense. God will defend your life as you run to him. But he also has these beautiful descriptions saying, his feathers, his wings. I like this because it's gone from being quite inanimate objects to now talking about a mother bird or a father bird protecting its young, right? So it's now got, it's now got a bit personal. There's warmth here. It's not just a fortress. He's like a parent birds protecting young. There's love. There's tenderness. This is how God protects your life. He's not just a fortress around you. He's like a parent guarding you. And then it describes his shield. His faithfulness will be your shield, it says. Man, his faithfulness, his character, he just doesn't change. He's so consistent. Unlike us, we're fickle. I mean, God is so constant, so consistent. It's like a shield around your life. You can base your life on the consistency and faithfulness of God. And then verses 3 to 6. Surely he will save you from the foulest snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be a shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrows that fly by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. When you look at these descriptions here of, of the various attacks we face, foulest snare, it's like a trap. You know, like a, a, a trap in the woods and the, and the animal gets caught suddenly in this trap, unseen trap, deadly pestilence. It says, uh, you know, he's, he's terror of the night, arrow that flies by day, pestilence that stalks in darkness. It's talking about unseen dangers. You know, you could do everything to protect your life, but there are unseen dangers both from spiritual sources and from people and just from life. There are unseen dangers that you cannot preempt every single one of them. But God here says he will protect you from unseen dangers. I remember growing up in Glasgow. Um, there were a few unseen dangers growing up in Glasgow. I, 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 between when I was, up until the age of 15, I'd been jumped um, seven times. People attacked me, assault me. I, I had knives pulled on me. I remember fishing one time, just me and my friend were fishing down at a local loch. This gang of folks pulled knives, nicked all our stuff. I mean, it was pretty rough growing up. I had people attack me, punch me, bloody noses, and all that stuff. And I remember, you kind of jump seven times before you're 15, you kind of get a little bit paranoid. <laughs> right? But then I got saved. He became my God. I gave my life to God. Honestly, fear left. I've actually found myself in situations that were more dangerous. Not, not, not I was, wasn't testing God, but I was out of the love of God. I was having opportunities to meet with people and chat to people. Some folks in, in bad drug addiction issues, needles lying around in the middle of some of the places in Alexander Parade or Duke Street in Deniston. Some of the rough areas of Glasgow, and yet there was no fear and there was divine protection. So it, it was shocking the contrast between the life before I was a Christian, B.C., and after Christ. Um, verses 7 to 8. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. Wow. You know, they don't know who wrote this psalm. 
it's, it's, it's left anonymous in the Bible. Some people think it was Moses because he wrote Psalm 90, the one before it. And it's kind of, it's got, if you look at the themes, it's got similar themes to Exodus, like the, some of the plagues and some of the different things they saw and some of the battles. Other people say, well, it might have been David who wrote it, but we really don't know. But if it was Moses or David's, you know, this is a kind of a clear illustration. They saw battles like this. You know, they were the only ones standing. Everyone's dead. Moses and David, right? You know, David, some of David's mighty men, they lived this way. They, they killed like hundreds of people in an afternoon. That was just what they did. They just liked doing that sort of thing. It's just, they were, they were like leaders, these guys. <laughs> Moses and David, they saw battles where God's divine protection was on them and his favor was clearly on their lives. And I think that's what it's alluding to, that kind of thing. You know, ultimately, the, this, we will observe with our eyes the destruction of the wicked. The truth is that outside of God, we are wicked. And left in that predicament, we will go to hell forever. So in one sense, this is talking about eternal judgment and also eternal salvation, that God will be our eternal refuge if we turn to him in this life. You live with God now, you will live forever with God. You live without God now, ignore him, live like he's not there, not glorify or acknowledge him. You will continue just, all that death does is transition you. It just petrifies the situation you were in through this life. It makes it permanent. You'll just be in it forever away from God, the destruction of the wicked. Verses 9 and 10. If you say, the Lord is my refuge, and make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you, no disaster will come near your tent. Amazing story. Uh, during the American Civil War, um, there was one of the Confederate soldiers had been stationed to be, uh, uh, you know, on guard at the edge of a forest, you know, a wee while away from their barracks. And as that particular night, as he was walking through, it was dark, as he was walking through the forest, he had this strange sense of fear come over him. And he just, he was, he was really concerned. And he didn't know why he was feeling fearful, but he suddenly felt fearful. And in that moment, he felt compelled to sing a song. And he sang a song, Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. And then he goes, the song goes on and says, other refuges, I have none. And he sang this song, and it was probably an irrational thing to do because you're not meant to be singing. You're in a battle. But he broke the silence and sang this song. And then the fear that he'd had lifted. Anyway, years passed, the war ended, and one Sunday, this particular soldier was at church, and they sang this same hymn again. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. Other refuge, I have none. And as he sang this song, a man came to him at the end and said, I've never met you, but I've heard your voice before. And he said, were you in the forests during the war singing that song? And he said, yes, I was. And this man was one of the unionists. He was one of the other, other sides. And he, he and some of other men were in the forest that night, and they were pointing their guns at him about to shoot and kill him. And then he started singing this song about God being his refuge. And he turned to his men and said, don't shoot. And he said, I, I, I couldn't remember what you looked like, but I will never forget your voice. You make him your refuge. No harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. And even if you're crucified, I would rather, just, I would rather be crucified with God being my refuge. You know, I, I'm just, I'm just going to run to him. And I believe he will protect me and I believe he will protect you right through this life. 
But if there's a moment comes where within the will of God, not that God will do it, but within the will of God, something happens and God's got something going on we don't understand, then you need to just run to him as your refuge anyway. Verses 11 to 13, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in your hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. You know, <clears throat> here we see probably talking about good angels and bad angels. I think that's what these verses are talking about. Verse 13 probably refers to Satan and demons. You know, tread upon the great lion and the serpent. 1 Peter 5, 8 describes Satan. It says, your adversary, the devil, prowls along like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Revelation 20, verse 2 says, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. The truth is that stuff goes on in life and it's not all just stuff. Sometimes there's a design behind the stuff. Sometimes there's an agenda designed to cripple you and take you out. Satan has no good agenda for your life. Don't be deceived into believing there is no such thing as a being called Satan. There is. He is actively designing ruin for humankind, trying to get people away from the living and true God. But in contrast, in the psalm, we see that God will commission his angels to protect you. Demons and Satan were just angels that rebelled against God and decided no longer to give him glory, but decided glory for themselves. Angels are servants of God, but are also servants of us. It says in Hebrews 1.14, are not all angels, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? I, I mean, that's an amazing thought. I'm guessing some of you will have had, in fact, hands up, if you've had an angelic encounter in your life, hands up. All right, a few hands up. Okay, I, I, I would guess that because that's, actually not as uncommon as you think. And those who didn't put their hands up, you actually probably have had angelic encounters. And you'll realize looking back, think, no way. You look back in eternity and think, wow, cool. Thank you, God. Because you're going to see how many times he actually did intervene and you didn't even realize it. How cool is God? And, you know, I, I think this is the reality of the life we live in. John Patton, who was from Glasgow, uh, became a missionary to the New Hebride Islands. Uh, they, they were totally unreached, and the tribes people were very dangerous. And he lived in this situation, he went through so many hardships and, and tough times just being there. It was not a comfortable choice. And he was there to share the good news about Jesus with the people in that, in that island. On one particular night, uh, some of the tribes folks gathered with torches to set on fire the missionary outpost to put it on fire so that John Patton and his family would have to run outside, and when they came outside, they would slaughter them. That was their agenda. And that night, John Patton saw these torches coming towards them, and he and his wife got on their knees in their missionary house, and this is all documented, and they prayed, and they asked God. They prayed right through the night. They asked God for his deliverance and protection, and the place didn't go on fire. And in the morning, they looked, and all the tribespeople had left. A year or so later one of the heads of the tribes had become a Christian. And John Patton asked him about that particular evening and said, why didn't you come and burn the, the mission house down? And they said, who were those men there with you? And he went on to say that they saw hundreds of big men in shining garments with drawn swords circling the mission station. I believe that. Verses 14 to 16. Listen to this. 
because he loves me. Do you love him? Do you love him? Because he loves me, says the Lord, I'll rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Eight I wills. I will rescue him. I will protect him. I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I'll deliver him. I'll honor him. With long life, I'll satisfy him. I will show him my salvation. How cool is God? You know, notice God doesn't just rescue from the bad times. He doesn't just lift you out the pit and just put you on. It's like you're in reverse. He doesn't just get you out of reverse and put you into neutral. That's not what God does. God takes you into a place where he takes you beyond not just being in the pit. He takes you into a good place. That's what God does. That's why Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. That's the negative. I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly. He doesn't just take you out of the negative. He wants to bring you into a good place. Long life, I will satisfy you. I'm going to honor you. I'm going to show you my salvation. It's all a picture of God's honoring and blessing on a believer's life. Do not expect just to get out of the bad times and just get into neutral. Expect an amazingly blessed life because that's who God is. Thank you, quiet people. So how is it that you can overcome Satan's and demons? How is it you can overcome the sin which, if left undealt with, would take you to hell? How is it that you can escape death? The answer is Jesus. Because Jesus, on the cross, defeated Satan and demons. Because Jesus on the cross took your sin and my sin upon himself and he bore the full weight of the sin of the world and died in our place. Because Jesus Christ died the death we should have died. But he resurrected in the third day. He's alive now and he can be your savior. You can be rescued from Satan, sin and death. And you really need to be rescued from Satan, sin, and death. You don't get rescued from those things by becoming a good person. We're already too far gone. You get rescued from those things by coming to him and letting him be the refuge of your life and your refuge in eternity. So how? So we've, we've looked at how the things that God's going to do We've looked at how God will do these things for you. But I guess we've got to ask, and we're not in control of God, thank God. God's declared his intention and his desire. But the question is, what can we do? And the Psalm's got some things to say about that. It's got four things it says that we can do. The first thing it says we can do is we can dwell. Say dwell. Verse 1 and verses 9 and 10. Verse 1. Whoever dwells, say dwell, in the shelter of the Most High will rest, say rest, in the shadow of the Almighty. And then verses 9 and 10, 
If you say, the Lord is my refuge, and you make the Most High your dwelling, say dwelling. No harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. Dwells. Dwelling. Speaks of permanent residency. Speaks of the place you call home. You know, don't just visit God. Don't just run to him when you're going through a crisis. Live with him. Dwell with God. Bless you. Jesus in one place says, if you abide in me. You know, this is the key to an awesome life. Dwell with God. Abide in him. Don't go anywhere. Don't jump out and then jump back in again. Stay at home with God. No matter what you're going through, be at home with God. In life, dwell with God. In death, dwell with God. Through good times, dwell with God. Through bad times, dwell with God. He does not change. Stop jumping around. Just stay with him. Don't budge. Dwell with God. And then there's the promises right there. And notice it says, those who dwell in the shelter of the Most High will rest under the shadow of the Almighty. How can you be asleep in a boat in the middle of a storm? How can you be asleep between two guards chained expecting your execution the next day? Because those who dwell, rest. You dwell in God's. A rest comes into your soul that is supernatural. So don't rush and figure it and just dwell and let the peace of God impact your soul. Second word we see here is love. Say love. Say love. Verse 14. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. In other words, this isn't just coming to God because you're in crisis. This is talking about someone who loves God. This is talking about relationship. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I'll rescue him. Because that's what I do when I love people as well. And then the third word is no, say no. Verse 14, I will protect him for he acknowledges my name. New American Standard Version, which is very accurate, describes it this way. It says, because he has known my name. Now, in the Bible, names are very important. Names weren't just given because they were like, you know, one of the pop stars in 2,000 years ago, Palestine was called by that particular name. Or like they, they, in Brooklyn, so they call the kids Brooklyn, right? That, okay, it was deeper than that, right? In the Bible, people were called names because names were meant to reveal destiny and character, okay? So when it says, because they know my name, what God's saying is they know my character. These are people who have really known me. So get to know God. Get to know his character. Get to know who he is. Fall in love with the true and living God. And then finally, call. Say call. Verse 15 and 16. He will call on me and I'll answer him. I'll be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. You know, what you do when you make God your dwelling is you're praying to him. There's a constant communication between you and the Father. You're in hard times, where'd you turn? First place you turn, where is it? God. Not to the stuff, not to the prescribed medication, not to the substances, not to the escapism, not to the bad relationships. 
tough times, where'd you go? Turn to God. I mean, let, just, just get used to doing that. Just turn to prayer. When, you, when you're troubled in your mind, just stop what you're doing, find a quiet space and pray. Just call on him. You know, Elizabeth Elliot, after the loss of her husband's, didn't abandon the mission, amazingly. Her and her little girl, Valerie, and when she wrote the book, Shadow of the Almighty, she dedicated the book to Valerie, who was just a baby when Jim Elliot, the father, died. And they, they stayed at that place, and two years after the death of Jim Elliot, the Aka tribe invited Elizabeth Elliot to come and live with them, which was a huge step. And they lived there, and they, eventually the gospel was translated. The Mark's gospel first was translated into the Aka language. And many of the people became believers. A man called Kimo, who was one of the killers of the five missionaries, became a pastor in the tribe. In fact, today there are 3,000 people, sorry, 2,000 people in the Aka tribe. And now 400 of those 2,000 are believers in Jesus. This is a photo behind me of um, Katie Saints. Remember, Nate Saints was one of the five missionaries. Nate Saint was actually the pilot. This is his daughter, and in the background you can see his son, Steve Saints, and he's, he's waiting to get baptized. And there's Katie Saints being baptized, and she's been baptized by two tribesmen, Kim and Dewey, who were both part of the team that killed Nate Saint, her dad. And when you live under the shadow of the Almighty, the truth is, you just always win. God will see to it. You just always win. Let me end with a verse, Romans eight twenty-eight, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. You know, when you're in the purpose of God, when you're connected to the Father and you're in love with Him, you're just going to always rise to the top. God will see to it for His glory and because He loves you.